This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. There was a moment in my time when I was very anti-Christian, anti-the Bible, anti-everything in that religious world. And as I started somewhat making my way back into tentatively coming back into Christian circles, I attended a seminar and a friend of mine said, this will be really fun. It's not going to be like super Christian weird. There's maps. You get to draw on all these maps and the teacher's really great. And so I went and it was probably six or seven weeks worth of like once in, once a week going and sitting in this seminar. And it was the first time ever someone had brought out the real lived experience of people mm. in the Bible. And they connected them with other people in history and The thing that struck me so powerfully, which was such a big surprise, was the maps going, oh, they lived on a trade road. Oh, they lived in the middle of a mountain. Oh, they lived right next to the ocean. And just these really small things, they were like details I had never thought about before. So then fast forward a few years, I was in seminary and... I was getting very frustrated with the fact that everything was very heady, very theological, very Mm. philosophical. We were having really amazing conversations, but I needed hooks to something back to the real lived experience. Again, I was, I felt like I was just missing that in some of my classes. And one of my professors said, Cindy, I really think you should go to Israel go to a school. It's called Jerusalem University College. Mm. They have a three-week study program. Just put your feet on the ground. I thought, okay, that's probably exactly what I need. And I I looked up the school and I thought, if I can swing it, I'm going for a full year. Like I have to see the seasons. I have to, when does the grass grow? You know, is it beautiful? (laughs) What are all the festivals like? What, What is living there like? And I told my family I wanted to go, which they thought was weird because I don't come from a family where going to the Middle East is like a big dream vacation. Hmm. You know, I was always like a strong, independent female. I'm not going to the Middle East. And I decided to go and JUC in their prep materials sends you these, this homework. And it's a set of seven large maps. And it was the same maps that brought me back into the Christian world huh. several years before. So it was it was going through and learning biblical history among the rocks and the soil and the hot Middle Eastern sun and the really cold winter rains that, that just drew me back into the heart of God in a more powerful way, I think, than a lot of the more just technical classes that I had in seminary. Did you participate in digs as well? I didn't because when I was there, 
Uh, I Well, I spent one year as a student and then the president of the university hired me to stay on staff there. And so I was on staff and the summertime was my busiest time. Mm. Uh, I did a lot of teaching of short-term groups or three-week educational trips. And that's when all the major digs happen. Right. So I got to know several of the archaeologists who dig over there and I'd be the really annoying professor bringing a group of 40 students looking over the fence and being like, hello, can you take a break and tell us what it is that you're digging? That would hmm. be really fun. Um, but yeah, so I haven't actually dug and I'm a little bit hit and miss as to if I want to do all that slave labor. <laughs> <laughs> because it's worse than slave. You're actually in your you're pain paying. to be there. Yeah. Yeah. To, to dig, dig yeah. and sift and get dirty. Yeah. I mean, it's um, so, intoxicating to be the one who uncovers an artifact, uh, but I like to be friends with all the archaeologists and then just look at the artifacts they find. Same, same, same. There's nothing like going to a pile of dirt with an archaeologist friend and letting them interpret all this stuff that just looks like <laughs> incohate masses of junk right. on the ground. Yeah. Um, I... I want to go back to something that you kind of threw away there. And I, I just want to ask personally, what? because I think a lot of people go to seminary. Well, okay, let me rephrase that. A lot of dudes go to seminary. Well, let me back up. A lot of white <laughs> dudes go to seminary. And they get into that high-headed philosophical systematic theology. And they love every minute of it, right? Um, I yeah. was kind of like you. I liked it because I was a brand new Christian when I went to seminary or, or a relatively new Christian. And so I just needed something to hang, you know, like what, what was going on? Did this all make sense? Was it even plausible? So it was a little relieving, but I did, would get tired after a little while, like, okay, when does the rubber hit the road here? So I'm wondering what is, yeah. what do you self-diagnose as the reason why you were, you might've been a little impatient with those kinds of discussions? For me, my experience in those classes was we were talking about what a lot of Europeans thought about mm. Christian doctrine. And I just kept going, I, I don't know, like the Bible, I, I felt like we were going somewhat ill-prepared into those conversations because we hadn't yet studied in detail the actual biblical text. Uh, and so I kept feeling like it was an improper conversation to which I couldn't argue articulately because we were cherry picking like topics and issues out of the Bible. And I was very thirsty for a more cohesive, solid narrative that I didn't quite have yet. And mm. To be fair, I think there's probably other people who were other students at the seminary who may have had that kind of background, but it wasn't my background. And so I was just impatient with it. And I felt like it was a weird, like why we were the classic, or at least some of the classes I had, I didn't know anything about the Eastern church or any of the church councils. Maybe I was aware that there were church councils. Right. But we kind of did the classic start with the Reformation and then talk about Calvin and Luther and Bart and all these other modern theologians. And it felt weird to me. I just felt like we had massive gaps of history that 
were empty and blank in my head and I couldn't figure out what was supposed to happen Hmm. there. Uh, And I think as I became more critical, even of that process, I realized there were sociological factors that were going on in the lives of Calvin and Luther and Bart that I also did not know. And so I didn't know what was provoking their arguments. So I just felt ill-prepared for the conversation, which is why I was like, can we just go back to the Bible? (laughs) I just need to know about the Israelites. Right. And I think even when you do go back to the Bible, well, this has been my pitch lately is to say you're, you're entering an Asian collection of text with, if I can use the word broadly, Asian thinking, Asian, um, Asian styles of reasoning um, that don't always line dovetail with the way that we think thinking should happen. And and I'm not saying that the way we think is even right uh, necessarily or better. Um, But there's a certain foreignness that you'll, you'll find many scholars. uh, I think it's more popular now to talk about the wildness of the old Testament yeah. Maybe less so the New Testament, but just to, like, don't try to tame it because it's doing something else, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there, there is uh, the when you're in that context full time. So for me, when I went and lived over there and my Western views were the minority views mm-hmm. and I was surrounded by people with a more Asian focused or Eastern focused worldview, even modern day that was highly formative for the way I read Bible now. Yeah. It, um, it does make a lot of American theological discussion look very parochial and cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and niche in a very, and, and, and same thing, like when I'm in Brazil talking to my brothers and sisters in Brazil who are having these very distinct, I'm like, okay, this is a very Brazilian discussion. You're having a scripture right now. So, um, doesn't make it wrong. It just uh, it br- broadens the horizon upon which we place uh, theology, I guess. Yeah. So and how... you start to when oh, you become ahead, familiar when you become familiar with some of those details, you start to. In my case, I started to um, dismantle some preformed theology that was given to me, and and i was able to kind of reconstruct a theology that i felt was more authentic to what i was seeing in mm-hmm. the text based on the way people were living based on even just talking about um seasons and holidays when you put all of that or laws about taking care of someone else's animal mm. it is a very powerful statement for the god of israel to be giving those kinds of laws about something as basic as you have to feed this large animal until your neighbor can come get it. Like that sounds like, okay, whatever. Like I house sit for dogs all the time. No big deal. (laughs) But when you go, you know, there's a family that probably doesn't have enough food to feed itself. It's living with the possibility of starvation and thirst every single day. And then this big animal comes into their care and God says, you have to feed it. That's like, do I feed my neighbor's oxen or do I feed my children? <laughs> it's right. it's a whole entire different way of understanding the heart of the God of Israel. Yeah, I, I actually connect those. This, this is my own thinking in this. I connect those two those two thoughts that you just put together in um, the addendum to the Akedah, where uh, uh, it says, on, on the Mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. 
and I stop and ask my students the question, well, what mount and what, what shall be provided? Why would they be worried about this? Right. And kind of get them into that scarcity mindset that's so yeah. foreign to all of us. So, um, you teach a lot on the narratives of scripture and the places that are associated with them and maps. And of course you can only, I mean, there is a difference. We were just talking before we got started about there's a difference between being there and seeing pictures of there. Um, although at least see pictures of of these locations uh, if you yeah. can't be there. Um, I wonder if there's any prototypical story that you see, maybe when you take people on tours to Israel or Turkey, um, there's something that being there or understanding the locale or the geography uh, or the topography where you just see it open their eyes, you know, like night and day and understanding what's going on in the text. Almost every single place we go. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it is hard. It just is. Right. I think people in modern society and in Western societies, we are so global minded and technologically minded that we have lost our ability to see place and how powerful the ground around us is. We think we control these things. And there, my students, when I ask them, hey, do you go uphill or downhill to the grocery store? Uh, Most of them have no idea. Nice. Because they're in a car. Yeah. And so there's something when I can get people into the land of the Bible and I get them off the bus as often as possible. And I force them to have really sore quads and hamstrings and calf muscles, because that's the only way they really get to understand and feel Hmm. what it means to be in a place like that. But I could say there's a really nice comparison that you can make between Jerusalem, when you're standing in Jerusalem, whether it's the first or second temple period, Jerusalem, with the hills and the valleys and the short horizon line and the busyness and the hill country part where you're close to the Mediterranean Sea, but it's not convenient to Mm -hmm. you. So you have this kind of hemmed in, close, crowded feel in Jerusalem. And then you can go and put that same group of people on the cliff face or the hills right outside of where Nazareth is, Hmm. where the valleys are huge, wide open. Nazareth is facing the Jezreel Valley. The hills are far away from you. Your horizon line stretches on forever and ever. And you can see the main traffic at your feet in the valley, but you're not in the middle of it. So you don't Mm -hmm. feel the crush and the craziness of it. And then you can take that same group of people and take them a couple miles away and put them at Capernaum. And it's right on the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, right on the primary road, right in the middle of a whole bunch of different kinds of people with different languages happening. And then after they've had those experiences, You can now have a fascinating conversation you can't have in a classroom anywhere else. When you start to say, when we read the Gospels, where was Jesus most often? Mm. I mean, he grew up in Nazareth. And so you can talk about what his growing up years would have been like in a village overlooking a main road. He spent all of his time in Capernaum and the Galilee area, and he rarely went up to Jerusalem. Like that is a really interesting kind of conversation to have about 
what is Jesus doing? What types of people is he reaching out for? When he has arguments, who's in, who's standing there having the argument with him? Mm. And that changes in every single location. So there's a certain type of, I love being able to pull out those conversations in people. And that is simply because they've experienced those different places and they can make those comparisons. I think a lot of people who go to Israel, especially if you kind of just rent a car and drive around on your own, you get this feeling. Uh, I, I was with a Brazilian friend of mine once and he said, you know, we have all of these terrains, you know, we have uh, ocean, we have desert, we have uh, conifer forest, uh, we have mountains, all of this, but you have to drive eight hours in any direction to get to one of these. And here in Israel, you drive two hours and you've seen almost all of those, right? right? It's very yeah. dramatic shift in terrain. And even what you've just described for us, I wonder how you deal personally with, uh, I don't have a name for it, but maybe just call the the Israel overwhelming symptom where like it's so (laughs) much information so fast about something that you thought you knew. And now you're like rethinking everything and you can't keep up with all the place names. And how do you, how do you actually help people to process these radical shifts in their thinking that are happening when they're in Israel? Oh, that's. I know lots of tour guides who don't even try. They just like fire hydrant and go plow over people with the knowledge. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is I'm not trying to be a fire hydrant. Like I don't try to just spill data. Uh, I do have people. I had one group with me once and it was so funny because maybe on day two of a 10 day trip, they started saying, Cindy, you're ruining the Bible for us. And I was like, no, no, no. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. I'm giving you the proper images. I'm rewriting your assumptions about the Bible, which is going to make your Bible more fascinating. And so just kind of helping people see just because they're learning something new or it means something different than they always thought isn't a bad thing. It, that is a great learning opportunity. And it's really exciting to continue into that process. Um, when I tend to have undergrads or graduate students, I'm very particular about the way I introduce new ideas and get, get them to join the conversation so that it mm-hmm. isn't just a data dump, but it is a look at the land that is around you. Let's read this text. Now you tell me what is going on that you never saw before and help them take ownership of that transformation of their mind and the way that they're perceiving different biblical events. But it can be overwhelming. I mean, it's why I'm really glad I went as a student for a whole entire year. I just, and it took me probably two or three years after that to continue to absorb and even now, I mean, I don't, I've stood on some of those places hundreds of times and I still go sometimes. And because I continue to learn and I've had different conversations with people over the mm-hmm. years, I stand in a location. I'm like, I, I never saw this connection before. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Cause I feel like every single time I go to Israel, it's yes. something new, lots of things new, actually, not just something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
yeah, that that situatedness in the land, it does take, I, I do wonder if a, if one two week trip actually th- does it or it just opens the door uh, to the ability or yeah. to the, the new insights. Um, so you are, are known for trying to tie, not data, as you said, but actually the narratives of scripture. Um, mm-hmm. So why do you think... I mean, do you think the narratives are more the most important part of scripture? Is that uh, I, I was reading some of your literature of what you're teaching, and do you see narratives as like the center of scripture, or um, like I wonder how you think about legal reasoning and poetry would be my you know my next follow on. <laughs> yes. Do you teach a legal reasoning of the land uh, class, which oh, that would be really fun actually, um, or poetry of the land? How do you see those fitting together, and why is narrative at the forefront of your teaching? I like to talk about the land of the Bible as a character in the narrative. Hmm. And so the narrative, I think we, well, anyone who's in the modern entertainment industry will tell you that humans are story driven. And I have noticed over the years when I'm teaching a variety of Christian audiences that they are less and less informed on the greater connecting narrative throughout Hmm. scripture. And I think that's why I've been drawn into that primarily, because I feel like I just want to give people that context. Like, do you actually know who comes before whom? And we tend to learn stories like there's a David and Goliath story and it becomes a theological bubble. It has a theological meaning that floats around independent of the Solomon building the temple story with its theological meaning. And that becomes different than Josiah and his theological reforms. And these stories with their theological meanings means we strip the humanity away from the people of the Bible. And what I really love doing is just pull all those bubbles back onto the ground, anchor them into a place so that we all can relate again to the humanity of those people. So that we go, now what do we understand about the faith choices they had to make? Because now we understand their humanity in a different way. And I would say that even the legal text and the poetic text is narrative driven because you can take all of those legal documents that sound like just a list of rules, but they're very much involved in and relate to the way people lived their lives, their real lives in a real place at a real time. And so that's why I like this narrative part because it gets to, it allows me to talk about the land as a character, as an influential character And it allows me to then go, now let's look at the laws around the festivals and talk about what is happening given that particular context. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I was looking at my shelf because I I can't remember her name, but (laughs) there's an Israeli scholar who wrote a nice little book for SBL Press um, showing how even the laws of the Hebrew scripture are often micro narratives where it's, it's not if this, then that it's, if you see this happening, then you must take action and it yes. makes you a character in the narrative. And yeah, I love that. And I think, I think there's something about the logic of narratives that feels very humane to us, uh, comforting, uh, helps us enter the story and the various, uh, I like the way that you said the land becomes a character. Um, I spent a lot of time working in Genesis one through 11 and I always have to tell students, 
prepare yourselves for the shock of your lives. The dirt is going to be like one of the most primary characters in this story all the way through the end. Like you're not going to believe how much dirt shows up here. Right. Um, So uh, in a, in a key position, like the, in an earth changing position. So, um, yeah. So I think that's a a great way to, to get people into uh, the land uh, narrative nexus. I think of, um, well, I'm trying to, and maybe we can think aloud together. What is your technique for people who are just never going to be able to go over to the land? Because part of me thinks like, okay, it's not ecologically viable for everybody to get in a plane yeah. and go over uh, to the land and do all of this. Um, so what It's not we... even politically possible for people right. from certain countries. Right. Um, or Israel, as you know, because you've walked the hills, is not a conducive place for anyone who's experiencing physical disabilities of any sort. It just is prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we help them feel the earth uh, and feel the place? And uh, I mean, we can describe it all day and all night, but how do we actually help them feel the land and the narratives back wherever they're at? And part of my question is, is actually, there's a trap in there, I think, too, because I I have thought about this. My grandfather lived through the Depression. He actually had to go fish every morning to get his food for the day for a few a few years. Like, that was part of his life. Uh, he lived on a farm. Uh, I've worked with lots of people that grew up on a farm. I mean, people in the city now, but 80 years ago, they grew up on a farm. Uh, and And it always shocked me that when they read Scripture, they had some actual grasp of some of the things that were going on there, even though they worked on a farm with a tractor, not a, you know, they didn't have to pull a plow by hand. So I wonder, I I mean, I do think we're, we might be at a disadvantage just because um, we're enough generations removed from that kind of work in a way that my, you know, my Western Kenyan friends who actually do farm today have better access to these things. Absolutely. So let's talk about the rest of us schmucks who don't have that. (laughs) that Yeah. The ones who are stuck over here on our iPhones. Right. Well, there's a lot of technology uh, that has gotten in the way of us being able to connect to place, but a lot Mm. of technology that likewise can help us reimagine place again. Mm. So even I am teaching a course right now that is on the journeys of Paul. And For the first time ever, because I've always used two-dimensional maps, and for the first time, I am playing with using Google Earth Pro, where you can get people all the way down onto the ground and then view and look up the hill and arise to the plateau and then move over to a place and see how much agricultural land is there. And there's a bit of an immersive experience you can give people in that way. There's more and more VR, uh, virtual right, reality about this. programs that are out there. Um, I'm planning on doing a, a biblical studies one with my brother who would not be found readily in a Christian environment, but loves and adores the big theatrical narratives of hmm. the Bible and had so much fun exploring the land with me. And so he's in that LA crowd. and. So we're going to do some sort of virtual reality type thing. And there's a new technology actually that 
I think the company is in the UK, but there's a few people in the States that are trying to use it where instead of needing the virtual reality glasses per individual, you can actually do a community experience where you are not an individual having an experience, but you are a group of 20 people with the screens all around you as a collective group having an experience being immersed in a land. And so as some of those technologies are developing and becoming better, it'll become so much easier to get people who, for any number of reasons, will never get into the land itself, but will be able to have a little bit of an immersive experience. Hmm. And then I tell people sometimes, like, go for a hike, don't drink any water for an hour and a half. You know, it, it's sometimes really simple things. You're like, are you aware of that thirst? Okay, now only after you're done with the hike, you're dying of thirst, it's really super hot out. Now you're ready to read Psalm 46 mm. or Psalm 23 right. or Second Samuel. You know, it's like you just kind of have to physically get your body into that place where you're experiencing the hunger and the thirst the biblical writers were experiencing. I can already imagine what you do at Engedi. Oh, <laughs> we have so much fun at yeah. Engedi. <laughs> um, but you can't the, get to Engedi until you've been spending lots of time in the wilderness. Right. And anybody who's been in that wilderness or, or go Google images of the Dead Sea and, and around, it is terrifyingly waterless land. I mean... And, and, and there's a giant source of water that you absolutely wouldn't want to touch your lips, right? That's so, right. Um, how did you get into all of this? What, what was your training? Like, so you went to seminary, like, how did you percolate up into this position? It was that seminary professor who said, go for three weeks. That was the little push I needed in that direction. It was the time I spent as a student and working for Jerusalem University College that that really gave me the time to cultivate a familiarity with the land and to get it into my bones and into my muscles a little bit more. And then I just keep exploring that. I keep, uh, when I did my PhD, I, I wrote on the book of Deuteronomy because I think it's the best book of the Bible. It's right amazing. And everyone it is the best. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's up there, though. It's really far up there. <laughs> no, I like Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, those are good arguments to have, though. It's because it shows how foundational they are for the whole rest of the Bible. And I love that about Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy is a very earthy book. It has lots and lots of dirt in it, like Genesis 1 through 11. And... I love that. And so it really got me thinking about a theology of place. And so as I looked at the theology of place that gets built and presented in the book of Deuteronomy, it has given me in my modern professional life in the United States, a whole different way of seeing my community, my role in my community, the role of my church, the role of Christians, the role of just humans living in a city or in the suburbs or aren't on farmland, you know? And so Hmm. that continues to make me more interested to go back to the land of the Bible and then relook at things because of the way I've been thinking about things in the States. 
Well, Dr. Cindy Parker, thank you very much for your wisdom and leading us on this virtual audio tour of the land. (laughs) My pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. There's always so many more things to talk about. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.